At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast. No carefully chosen quote to start us off today because today we are doing something a little different. Today we will be conducting an interview with Professor William Philpott, who is Professor of the History of Warfare in the Department of War Studies at King's College in London. Professor Philpott is a widely published author on the topics of the First World War and Anglo-French relations, and has written the monumental work titled Bloody Victory, The Sacrifice on the Somme, which the Financial Times just recently described as having, quote, widened the perspective of the Somme battle to portray the Somme as a key point at which the balance tilted against Germany in an international war, end quote. Bloody Victory, which was released as Three Armies on the Somme here in the U.S., went on to win the 2009 Society for Army Historical Research Templar Medal and the U.S. Western Front Association's Norman B. Tomlinson Jr. Book Prize. Bloody Victory is the key information resource for this podcast's current coverage of the Battle of the Somme. Professor Philpott has also more recently published the book Attrition, Fighting the First World War, which has been released in the U.S. under the title War of Attrition. He has also published several articles on the First World War, Anglo-French relations, and 19th and 20th century British, French, and European defense policy and strategy, among other related topics. I am very grateful that Professor Philpott has given us some of his Saturday afternoon in order to discuss the Battle of the Somme, its impact and effects with us here at the Battles of the First World War podcast. So right after the intro music, please join us for an interview with Professor William Philpott. All right, folks. Uh, so we are here with uh, Professor William Philpott, who has uh, very graciously taken time out of his Saturday to uh, discuss the Battle of the Somme. Good morning, uh, Professor Philpott. Philpott, rather, my apologies. <laughs> <laughs> So, first question I had is, what sparked your interest in the First World War? Uh, I guess, like many uh, young young boys, I had an interest in military military matters, uh, particularly the Second World War. It wasn't until I went to university and tried to pursue that interest on a history program that I started to study the First World War. Realized it was a an interesting war. 
or there's a lot more to uh, find about, find out about. So I stayed on to do further uh, doctoral research on that subject. Uh, that interested me in anglo-French relations in the First World War, so the subject of the First World War I published, and inevitably that got me on to studying the Battle of the Somme, which is the major anglo-French uh, battle fought in the, in the First World War. Cool. Uh, you know, I I started reading about World War Two as a as a as a boy as well. But uh, yeah, I kind of I went I went the same route. I eventually discovered World War One and then um, found it to be kind of way more interesting. It, you know, World War Two is also very interesting. But I think this, when I started studying it, it was just actually being un is discovered and reinterpreted by historians. Uh, yes. sort of, it takes a number of generations. So this was sort of 75 years after the, uh, the war itself. Uh, and you're going to find the same, I think, in the Second World War, uh, now that that generation of veterans are, are, are passing away, that scholars are going to re-examine that war, and some of the myths that are associated with that war, just as the myths associated with the First World War, are going to be re-evaluated re as, as, and look at the history behind them. Yes, yes. Um, so that moves in kind of to we just passed the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the Battle of the Somme on um, July 1st. Um, and I, I did see that there was a lot of commemoration ceremonies that took place um, in Tietfal and I, I believe all across the UK. And so what, what I'd like to ask is, what was the mood in Britain like? Like, in, in what were the com commemoration ceremonies like? I thought the, the commemoration ceremonies themselves were very well conducted. They were reflective on the soldiers who participated in the Battle of the Somme. They were solemn. Uh, they were poignant. Uh, the big international ceremony at Thiepval, I think, was very... Uh, dignified in the way they conducted it, and they did acknowledge uh, the the role of all the all the nations that were on the Battle of the Somme. Uh, it focused, of course, on the British and the Commonwealth nations, but uh, French representation was prominent, and there was even a German representative for the centenary, which hasn't normally been the case in the past. And oh, that's right. The ceremonies at home were uh, of a similar sort of uh, uh, reflective nature. Uh, of course, uh, at the risk of being Political, uh, political events that took place in Britain the week before would have cast a very uh, different complexion on the way the British viewed these ceremonies than they right. might have done had we not had a, a referendum which basically turned our back on our, shall we say, our affiliation with Europe has been there for 40 years and maybe I might argue from 100 years since, since the First World War. Right, 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 yeah. So I think whatever, whatever it appeared, people were thinking, uh, reflecting in a different way privately, but naturally and, and appropriately, politics was not brought into the ceremony, but uh, these things were being planned before the political consequences of the, of the referendum we held would have been known. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, I, I thought one aspect of the commemoration was um, the, we are here, the soldiers who walked through train stations, shopping centers. I, um, I've seen some of that on, on YouTube. I, I thought that was a particularly touching way to, 
to to honor those men from from a hundred years ago. So I I've never seen anything like that. I was really impressed that that Britain, you know, put forward that effort or and supported that that artist's effort to do that. I, I agree with you. I think that was very very effective and a surprise. I I knew nothing about it though. I've been. Uh, associated with a lot of the preparations uh, and the First World War centenary activities. That was a, uh, a genuine surprise to everybody. And the fact that it got national, clearly international recognition is very significant. And I think in some ways it characterizes the way we approach commemorating the First World War, war now. We look at the soldiers, the individuals who went to the battlefield, particularly uh, relating to the 1st July 1916, which of course is uh, the day when the, the volunteer army, Kitchener's volunteer army, was committed uh, en masse to battle at the first time. Yes. Though there has been a, a slightly different approach to centenary commemoration as a whole in this country, where we've tried to identify that it was not just soldiers going abroad to fight and, and, and to, to give their lives for their country, but it also involved a, a gen, genuine a mass popular national effort to back that military effort. And so the, the actual tone of the commemorations more generally has been focused on the communities at home and what they did and the role they actually played in the First World War in raising soldiers and supporting uh, their army uh, in, the, in the field and, and, as it were, the popular resilience on which mobilisation and actually seeing the war through to a successful uh, conclusion was based. Yes. So, um, that brings us into uh, moving on to the Somme battle. So I guess if, um, uh, if you knew someone who was going to do a podcast on the Battle of the Somme, uh, what are some themes or threads of thought that you would like to be presented in that podcast? I think the first thing I would stress is the Battle of the Somme was not one day. Although, of course, we commemorated on its opening day, right. and the events of the 1st July 1916 are notorious, particularly for Great Britain. Uh, yes. It actually is a battle that lasts uh, for 140 days thereafter. Yes. And indeed, in some ways, it lasts into the spring of 1917 before the German army actually decides to retreat from the Somme battlefield. Oh, interesting. Uh, we also, of course, have a, an Anglo-centric perspective on what takes place. Uh, and we don't, uh, until recently, we just started, actually, I think, to suggest this actually was not a, a British effort, although it was a British effort and a British sacrifice, but it's also a, a determining clash between three major military powers uh, that are fighting the war in the West at this time. Uh, the German army's role in the battle is starting to be studied in much more depth, mm -hmm. uh, though we still get the battle portrayed as a fight between inexperienced British and more experienced German soldiers, and that's right. But the third element is the role that uh, France played. On the 1st July, France did not play a large role uh, relative to the British, but, uh, but about 40% of the battle on the 1st July was fought by French troops. Uh, thereafter, the French army played an increasingly large role as it, they became aware that the British army was a, not, not yet a militarily effective army. And okay. we don't have that contrast. We've lost uh, the contrast. Uh, and when you point out to people that there were more French soldiers fighting in the Battle of the Somme come September than there were British soldiers, uh, they are surprised because they think this is a British military effort. So in some ways it's culturally it's a British uh, battle, but uh, 
as a historical event, it's, it's, it's a world battle, a, a battle between three world empires. Uh, and essentially, if you appreciate it in that way, you can understand why this is the fulcrum, as it were, of the First World War, yes, why a battle yes. of nature is going to be fought at some place at some time, and how it actually affected the, uh, the nature of the war and the course of the war and the actual outcome of the war in two years' time. That is, um, France also participated in the battle, taking some 200,000 casualties during it. Um, why, why don't they get, get as much coverage? Is it simply because the, the availability of, of English language sources? Uh, it's... I mean, that's uh, that's a simple answer, and there's a certain mm -hmm. truth in that because English historians tend to focus uh, on uh, English English matters. A sure. lot of his history is is national or uh, rather than international. Uh, the sources for the French army's role, or indeed the German army's role, will be found uh, at least the primary sources, the archive sources, will be found abroad. So hard to find. But if you wanted published material on on all armies' roles in the battle. A lot was published between between the two world wars, right. uh, but it's when when I think the the battle was rediscovered fifty years after the war that it became a British uh, event, and it had sort of uh, by that time it had been been spun by uh, memoirs and uh, the way the British memory of the war had developed to become a sort of a, a focal point, a, a myth of the war rather than uh, a purely historical event. Uh, and therefore, Britons in some ways have spent their time arguing about what happened to the British Army and why it happened on the Somme, and have not been too worried about the broader context in which this uh, took place and why the battle was fought, how it was fought, and what its outcomes were, have become somewhat immaterial. Uh, and there's, there's a, possibly another dimension of this, which has nothing to do with the British approach to understanding the battle, it's the way the French approach there. First World War history as well, of course. Okay. 1916 is the year of Verdun. Right. Uh, and that very much dominates both French and German memory and commemoration of the war. They had very large commemorations of Verdun uh, about a month or so before the 1st of July uh, commemoration. So in that respect, uh, France focuses its attention elsewhere. And in some ways, largely the French have forgotten about their role in the Battle of the Somme as well. So we sort of can't blame the British for this. Uh, it's only now being re rediscovered. But there, there's clear reasons, as it were, why the British were not concerned about the, the French role. And there's also clear explanations why the French in some ways uh, uh, lost sight of it themselves. So if anything, the British uh, narrative ran that we needed to fight the Battle of the Somme to relieve the pressure on the French army at Verdun. Right. And that might certainly be a rationale for it starting in July 1916 at the time that it did. But that's not a rationale for why the battle continued uh, for four and a half months thereafter. Uh, right. uh, what we need to do to understand the song actually is to understand this is a battle uh, planned by, uh, arranged by, and directed by the French army. Firstly, the Commander-in-Chief General Joffre, who uh, basically drew up the strategy for the, 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 not just the battle, but the year as a whole, which was the strategy of attrition to break the uh, German army in the field. And right. secondly, the direction of the battle fell to uh, Ferdinand Foch, who uh, better known as the Allied Commander-in-Chief uh, in 1918. But essentially, his role was to take on, grind down uh, the reserves of the German army on the battlefield, which he did uh, very effectively. 
uh, you mentioned the figure of 200,000 casualties. I mean, that's a lot. Right. Uh, it's about half the figure of the British Army. Uh, people tend crudely to judge military success by gains of ground on the map. And you can see that the French Army gained slightly more uh, ground than the British for these casualties during that battle. Uh, so in that respect, it shows how military effective they were compared with the inexperienced British Army. It would be very useful if we focus more on the French effort, because it's a, an interesting contrast. We tend to try to understand why the British didn't get it right. But right. Uh, the French showed you exactly how you should uh, fight effectively on the battlefield by this point. I guess they'd made their own errors in 1915, but uh, they had learned from them. So in some ways, you've got a three-army battle in which one army is inexperienced, the British. Yes. And the French identify this straight away when the battle starts. If you can see it uh, written about in French uh, uh, documents at the time. But both the French and the German armies are actually at the height of their powers. The French have mastered the offensive techniques. They need to break into the German positions and take on and defeat the German army. And the German army has become a master of defensive tactics, which don't work against the French, but they work very effectively at the inexperienced British army. So you've got this dynamic going on on the battlefield, as well as the, the broader issues of what the battle is being fought uh, for. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny to, to read about the French struggling at Verdun, but then slowly, painfully learning those lessons and then taking it to the Somme where they just applied them. Like uh, General Fayol of the 6th Army, where he was just clearing a path before him with the artillery. And rather than, you know, the, the age-old saying, oh, you know, like, you, you guys will be able to walk across no man's land with your rifles slung, he, he was actually intending to, to provide that for his soldiers as, as much as possible. And I think it showed in, in the way the French attacks went out on 1 July versus, you know, the, um, the British Fourth Army. So that's definitely something I, I plan to bring, to bring up more of is, is that, that French effort. Yeah, it's certainly true. I mean, the idea you can advance without suffering casualties is because the artillery should have done its job. Uh, the irony is, of course, that uh, Henry Rawlinson, commanding the 4th Army, was very familiar with the French method and said, these are the methods we use, they'll be effective. And Douglas Haig, uh, planning the initial attack, overruled him. You must also understand there's a, a contrast he made with uh, every offensive that's properly planned uh, works very well in its first stage, maybe 48 to 72 hours. Mm -hmm. This is what the Germans did against the French of Verdun in February. Thereafter, the French mounted a much more effective uh, defence and, and contained and wore down the German attack. And you see the German defence doing the same against the Allies on the Somme after it consolidates. It takes a few days to bring the re bring necessary reserves in and right. reinforce the defences. Uh, and we tend to think that an opportunity was lost on the 1st July because the British failed. Even had the British taken all the, all the German objectives that they had gained, they would still, as it were, find themselves in a position that the Germans found themselves in at Verdun after a couple of weeks. More Germans would be forming more defensive lines in the back. So the idea that you were going to decide the war with a, a big push, break through the German lines, defeat their army in, in open warfare, was sim simply unrealistic uh, at this point, or indeed any, any point in, in the war. And I think right. one thing that does come out of the Battle of the Somme is uh, 
And I think Foch had realised this through the battles he fought in 1915, so he wasn't trying to do this. Uh, some generals still had to learn that lesson. But essentially, if any lesson was taken out of the Battle of the Somme, a uh, lesson that Foch and Fayol took out of battle, and these were the men who actually were commanding uh, the leading French, well, Foch was Allied Commander-in-Chief and Fayol was the leading Army Group Commander in mm -hmm. the 1908 offensive. They, they took out the lesson that uh, in order to beat the German army, you can't just try and put all your pressure on one spot. You've got to, uh, A, increase your... Your, 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 your carrying forces, yep. your, your, uh, your supporting forces, tanks, artillery, aircraft. And you've also got to be able, as it were, to mount a battle of the Somme or a battle on that scale once a week until you destroy the German army. So wow. it's just ratcheting up the process of attrition that the French army is trying to carry out on the Somme uh, in four and a half months over a, a limited uh, sector of the front. And Foch will write in his notebooks after the battle to beat the German army, we must do this, but we must do it much more quickly on a much grander scale. Oh, wow. And when he has the opportunity to do that in summer 1918, he carries it out in three months because he knows what he's doing because he's learnt the processes uh, but hasn't had the resources to complete the job on the song. And, and that, so that kind of leads me to, and I think you just brought it up uh, a little while back, what was the immediate impact of the Battle of the Somme following its end in November 1916? And I think... You already partially answered the question by, by saying, you know, the battle may have carried all the way into 1917 with the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line. Yes. Uh, I mean, if you look at the, the three armies uh, at the end of 1916, the German army is exhausted. It hasn't collapsed, but it has no strength left in it. It will hold its ground. Mm -hmm. It will keep giving ground slowly over the winter and limited uh, Allied attacks. It'll keep being pulverized by uh, Allied artillery, but you cannot operate this sort of ground over the winter. That's really what stops the battle. It, it sort of it clogs up with mud as much as anything else. It's an interesting contrast. In November 1916, the last offensive launched by the British and the French were large offensives involving several divisions. Uh, mm -hmm. And they were generally successful, the Battle of the Ankara, for example, on the end mm -hmm. of the British front. All the Germans could manage was localised counterattacks by small groups on individual trenches. That shows the, how the, the, the fighting capacity of the two armies had been affected by the course of the battle. Okay. Uh, and Thank it was Joffre, Joffre's intention, and he presented it to the Allies' political leaders, that the German army is almost defeated, we must pick this up and finish the job early in 1917. Uh, the Allied political leaders thought differently, uh, and they dismissed Joffre and appointed General Nivell, who'd actually carried out a very effective counterattack at the end of the Battle of Verdun, and he therefore appeared to be a general who knew what he was doing. Right. But as right. Fayol remarked at the time, he's, he's successful because he's done, done at Verdun what we've been doing on the Somme for the last few months. Uh, and it even said that if Nivell's plan had been carried out quickly and they'd struck against the German army early in 1917, Mm -hmm. Say February, the German army probably wouldn't have recovered and may have broken. But they were allowed time to mount this strategic retreat. They were allowed time to gather their reserves. And therefore, when the, the blow came in April, uh, the German army was organized to, uh, as it were, 
to, to hold it. Oh, wow. Though yeah. Germany recognised that strategically the war was lost on land, they could not win a war of attrition of this nature. Uh, that's why they resorted to a, a, essentially a, a naval strategy, unrestricted submarine warfare, uh, to try and win the war in 1917 and to try and just hold on on land while that, while that strategy uh, produced results. And that, of course, uh, was just, as it were, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> if they've lost the war on land, you then go and lose the war at sea as well by bringing the United States in. <laughs> right, right. But I think it'd be interesting to... Uh, Americans to know that the United States, although not an active belligerent in until 1917, was crucial in the Battle of the Somme. It was American money that paid for the munitions and uh, that the Allies were using uh, largely wow. Wow. in the battle. On the battle, you say it takes time for an army to equip and to train, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and essentially the British Army purchased a lot of its shells, uh, a lot of its guns uh, in America in 1915. That was delivered to the battlefield to support the ongoing offensive in 1916, and the German press used to complain that they they would pick up off the uh, the battlefield parts of shells that said made made in made in where would it be made uh, Chicago or somewhere like that or Pittsburgh, big American steel cities, and and they realised that the Americans were already in the war against them anyway, oh, wow. so it didn't really make much difference if they uh, declared unrestricted submarine warfare because American finance and American industry was already very effectively geared to the Allied war effort. Wow, that's... So I... I had some inkling that we were much more involved uh, in the war before uh, we officially joined it, but I'm still learning a lot about the American involvement in, in, in the Great War, and that this is um, absolute news to me, so... I definitely need to keep researching. That's that's amazing. Thank you very much for that. You can be technically neutral, as you were. Uh, mm -hmm. And certainly the Americans protested very much about the high-handed attitude the British took to uh, trade with, with the enemy and control of the seas. But at the same mm -hmm. time, uh, Britain was richer than Germany. It controlled Germany's access to international markets. And it could place very powerful orders in America, not only could place the orders in America, it could pay for these orders by borrowing money on the American capital markets. So in some ways, mm -hmm. Britain was mortgaged, Britain's war effort was mortgaged to America by the end of 1916. Potentially, mm -hmm. the one reason, one way Britain might have lost the war, if Britain had gone bankrupt. Uh, so the Americans coming in, uh, in some ways, was a, was a massive loan guarantee that they, yep. they would get their investment back, because Britain right. hadn't gone bankrupt at the end of the war. So there's uh, war economics behind this, as well as well as uh, high, high idealistic politics, and which is the way that President Wilson actually presented it. But uh, it was uh, uh, it's a, it's more complicated than than the, the rhetoric of political speeches. You must remember, 1916 was the American presidential year as well. Yes. And yeah. One of the big issues of that presidential election was what is America's attitude to the war? Will we maintain strict neutrality? Uh, might we uh, come into the war at some point? To um, to just kind of switch gears a little bit, I I have to ask your opinion, and I know you have it in 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 your book, Bloody Victory, or or Three Armies on the Somme for um, U.S. audiences, uh, but General Sir Douglas Haig, 
he's definitely much more complicated and a much more nuanced person. What, what, uh, what could you tell listeners about his leadership during the Psalm and, and the Great War itself? Yeah, Haig, Haig is a probably the the best known military figure in Britain in the First World War. He's become a uh, a controversial character. He's become a a hate figure because uh, he's seen as it were the man responsible for the for the for the loss uh, on the Somme and throughout the First World War. Uh, an appreciation of the nature of war uh, would suggest that in a war of this nature, there's going to be loss at some place at some time, and you can't blame the commander in chief. For that, right. Though I think there is a, a case to answer for his interference in the actual planning of the opening of the Somme offensive, uh, and I think he shares much of the responsibility for that plan not being as effective as it might have been. Although he must mm -hmm. accept an inexperienced army like Hague's was never going to do brilliantly in its first major offensive. Mm -hmm. But uh, Hague was Britain's best experienced military commander in 1916. Uh, his personality is often seen to be at fault. I think he was a... Uh, uh, his character didn't suit everybody he dealt with, but he was certainly a very well-qualified military leader. And you must remember, Haig's role was not simply to plan battles. In fact, ironically, he probably should have left the planning of battles to his subordinates, who had to knew the battlefields and had to conduct the battle. Mm -hmm. His role was roughly the equivalent of a, of, a, of a chief executive of a major international company. Uh, he had to, he had five million men under his command at the height of his command. He had to manage that army as an organization and to deal with the politics uh, of coalition and to deal with uh, politicians at home as well. It was much more a managerial than a, an old-style military leadership job mm -hmm. that Hague himself doing. Uh, and he's not generally judged on that. But there's a focus on certain errors that he made, although they're not Hague's alone. Uh, they were consequences were of the war and the events that he had to address. Uh, but there's a, a failure to recognise that actually, uh, under Hague's command, Britain secured in 1918 uh, its most continuous and effective series of military victories ever achieved by British arms. And you can appreciate that that's not going to happen in 1916. Haig's army is 12 times as big as the army that went to war two years earlier. It is mm -hmm. inexperienced. And Haig has the task of turning that inexperienced army into an effective fighting organisation. And the Somme is vital to that process. It's unfortunate that it started so badly, but in some ways you have to reflect on, on the way the British soldier would write at the end of the battle well, now we've fought this battle, we know how uh, to take on and defeat the German army. And they demonstrated the esprit de corps that required them to do that over the next two years. Uh, and you can't, of course, attribute that directly to Douglas Haig, but he is the man who organised, managed and led that uh, organisation. Uh, and at the time, uh, this was recognised. Subsequently, this, his reputation was undermined, uh, largely by... Uh, David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, while he was at the time, who never agreed with the strategy that Hay had been committed to before Lloyd George ever came to power. Essentially, it's the strategy that Joffre developed at the end of 1915 to, mm -hmm. uh, of attrition. Uh, and the problem you get there, of course, is that uh, uh, Lloyd George didn't like what Hay was doing, but never found himself in a position to actually act against it. 
although he would have liked to have done on, on a number of occasions, but he was a popular figure at home with Lloyd George's uh, political partners in the in the Conservative Party and with the with the army as a whole, which of course becomes a very powerful institution when you engage in a major war of this type. Excellent, thank you. So th that kind of ties into, I had a, a follow-on question of why wasn't General Haig sacked after July 1st, but I believe you, you've, you've kind of already addressed yeah. it by, you know. Just, just I'll add a bit more. I mean, if you mean should he have been sacked on the 2nd of July. Uh, yes, no, yes. You couldn't do that because it took a long time for the, the real picture of what happened on the 1st of July to actually emerge. It took even longer for it to emerge into public consciousness, probably not really until after the war had uh, had ended, simply because collating statistics and assessing the battle took time. It's not until historians start to uh, mull over events and politicians start to write memoirs criticising the commander in chief that that image starts to form. In practical terms, too, Douglas Haig had the backing of uh, Asquith, the British Prime Minister, in the summer of 1916. Asquith understood what Haig was doing and he appreciated that it had to be done in a way that Lloyd George never did. Uh, so when Asquith loses the premiership at the end of 1916, Lloyd George replaces him. At the same time, Lloyd George can't act against Haig because he doesn't yet, hasn't yet consolidated his position as Prime Minister. If the first thing the Prime Minister does is sack the Commander-in-Chief, who appears to have been successful uh, by the end of the right. on, then, then there'll be no confidence in the Prime Minister. Uh, so ultimately, right, right. Lloyd George as it were, waits after the war to retaliate against Haig in his, in his memoirs, which essentially begin the, uh, the denigration of Douglas Haig uh, after his death. Haig died in 1928 and had an enormous state funeral, was a very popular figure until his death. You must remember, after the war, he organised the Haig Fund and took after uh, and basically led the movement for ex-soldiers' welfare. But it's not until the 1930s, yes. uh, and particularly in relation to the shadow of a second war coming up, that Douglas Haig starts to be sort of uh, taken to task because a sort of a man who uh, sacrificed a generation of British soldiers for no, for no reason. So you must understand that the context in which history is written bears little relation to the actual circumstances uh, of the history as it's being made. Awesome, thank you. It, it also seems like a case, uh, a little bit of, of like the US Civil War where Lincoln wanted uh, General Sherman in place because he was the general who fought. You know, um, it, it seems I'm kind of seeing a parallel with with General Haig. Like he he was a general who would put his guys in the field and fight. Uh, oh yes, yes, Haig was certainly a, a a determined general who was prepared to take on and and, and defeat the German army. Uh, interestingly, Lloyd George, uh, not trusting Haig, tried to get the French. Uh, generals, firstly Nouvelle, uh to basically run the British army, uh, which of course is politically very, very sensitive to place British troops mm -hmm. under the direction of a foreign uh, general. So don't right. really get a, uh, a situation until 1918 with Foch is in command that uh, the, si the situation works. Uh, Lloyd George, uh, actually during the course of the Battle of the Somme, used to visit Foch and ask Foch, why, why is Hay doing such a bad job? Uh, Foch understood why, basically because he was inexperienced, but he wouldn't, as it were, take sides against Haig with Lloyd George. But mm -hmm. certainly Lloyd George respected Foch as a commander, and the fact that Lloyd George and Haig could both work with or through Foch 
made a big difference to the, the way the, the military coalition gelled and, and operated more effectively in 1918 than it was able to do in 1916, where Haig in some ways felt resentment being essentially uh, under the directions of Joffre and Foch during the Somme battle. You won't see it ever acknowledged in British histories or in Haig's own diary or uh, I mean, he didn't write a memoir himself, but a, an authorised account of his command, that the French were essentially the directing authority of the strategy on the Western Front and of the Battle of the Somme. And that's, a, to return to an earlier question, that's another reason why uh, the French were written out of the history, because Douglas Haig wrote them out right from the beginning. <laughs> and the official historian <laughs> of Britain followed, followed that, followed that uh, narrative, yeah. Excellent. Okay, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll move us to I think the the final question, which is again switching gears. So, the Somme is mostly a, a very grim and you know typically sad affair. But are there any moments of, of humor or or? levity during the battle that stand out for you and i and i, I realize we're, we're getting into gallows humor here but do, do you have any examples that that's a, an interesting question and uh, having researched the Somme in great detail the, the short answer is not many to be honest i i do mm -hmm. uh quote uh, in uh bloody victory or three armies on the, the Somme, the american uh version of the book uh, the account of a, a British soldier who, in his excitement at capturing a German uh, pickle halber, spiked helmet, finding it in the trenches he just stormed, he places it on his head mm -hmm. and is immediately shot dead by one of his comrades who thinks he's a German, oh. uh, for example. So that there are tragic but also somewhat pathetic moments, I think, in, in battle. But uh, those soldiers are, are known for their humour, uh, particularly out of the lines. There are a few examples of it to actually be found on the battlefield and when, when the fighting is actually uh, going on. They might joke about their experience afterwards, but uh, I can't find very few specific examples of, of what's, uh, what you might call trench, trench humour. Uh, yes. All right. Well, very, very understandable. Um, well, I think that... that um that covers the list of questions I had, sir. Um, so once again, uh, thank you very much for, for taking the time. Uh, again, on, on your Saturday, on a non-working day for you. Uh, very greatly appreciated. Um, and I hope you'll, you'll follow the podcast as, as we will try to, to uh, accurately portray the battle of the song. Yeah, please, please uh, let me let me know how how it goes. I, I'm always keen to encourage a a, a more nuanced understanding of <coughs> of the First World War than, than we have even a hundred years later. There's a lot of academic scholarship uh, that has yet to be, as it were, yet to inform public perception of the war. And I think that is something that good that is coming out of the passing centenaries. Excellent. All right. Definitely. Well, thank you very much, sir. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, Bye. thank you. And I managed not to cough till right to the end. <laughs> oh, quite all right. Okay. <laughs> and, I, and I actually, I do have my birthday yeah, beer here, but uh, 
But I, I neglected to open it. I've got to go and dry somewhere now. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Have a good day. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> Take care. Bye. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.